Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. If you're a listener of this podcast, you probably figured out that I'm a huge fan of improv. In fact, this is my third improv-related episode. Each has been unique and has brought its own gifts. And as you'll soon hear, this one delivers big. Author and Stanford Business School instructor Patricia Ryan Madsen wrote a book I loved so much I listened to it twice. It's called Improv Wisdom, Don't Prepare, Just Show Up. Super psych guest and world-famous Stanford psychology professor emeritus Dr. Philip Zimbardo said her students often describe her as a goddess, but that may be an understatement. I rejoice that her wisdom is now available to new audiences. Indeed, Patricia offers wisdom tips that relate to real life, whether you practice improv or not. The skills she shares and endorses can dramatically improve your at work and at home lives if you put them into play. So listen in as Patricia shares improv wisdom. Patricia Ryan Madsen, a hearty welcome to Super Psyched. It's an honor to be here. Love your book. There was so much wisdom indeed in your book that said that improv and wisdom could be in the same phrase. And I love the fact that it took you forever and a day to create something that really is a testament to the idea that there are certain things that are improvisational. And like you said, just going with the flow kind of renders you a dead fish in some cases. And there are times to apply improv to some things and some things maybe not to apply improv to. But boy, there are so many places where we miss our opportunities to engage in the levity and the connectivity and our natural tendency toward improv, what would you say got you into improv in the first place? I think desperation more than anything. (laughs) I had accepted a wonderful job at Stanford leading the undergraduate acting program. And so all of a sudden I'm faced with taught actors before, but never such brainiacs. The Stanford students were terrific. If I told them what I wanted them to do, they could do it to the max. But if I said, all right, what do you feel like here? How would you interpret this? Somehow they were often puzzled because there wasn't a right answer. So I needed something, some kind of tool or mindset or methodology to help these Stanford actors loosen up and get in touch with their own humanity. And right at that time when I had this need, a wonderful, brilliant guru, Keith Johnstone, dropped in my life. I was at an Esalen workshop with my Tai Chi master, and Keith was the guest. And so I was introduced to him and his book, Impro. And somehow the games and exercises and improvisation were just the key opener for some of the things I needed to do at Stanford. I never had any intention of creating some kind of life way or mindset, but at the time it was solving a problem of helping actors loosen up and be themselves. I had no interest in improv theater or the uh, performance. I just loved the tools that helped us learn how to say yes and such. And we'll probably get into some of the saying yes. Let's talk for a minute about what improv is and what it is not. 
Good question, because I think there's common misunderstanding and it goes something like this improv. Oh, I could never do that. I'm not at all <laughs> funny or fast on my feet. No, no, those are other people. And equating improv with comedy. And sure enough, improv does and can produce comedy. And there are a lot of wonderful, brilliant comics who fit that category. But improvisation, as I see it, is a way of doing something, a modus operandi, a DAO, a mindset that allows you to improvise dinner meal when you run out of something. You can improvise a speech at an event. You can improvise when you get lost. In fact, if you really look at life, most of the time we're improvising something, meaning we don't have a script. We don't have a script right now, you and I. We're having a conversation. And human conversation is improvisation. We thought about that. So why not look at the rubrics that improvisers use, whether they're improvising music, theater, a friendship, a business, and look at those and see if they might not help us expand our own lives, especially when everything is up for grabs as it is these days. I mean, since COVID, so many things are unknown and unknowable right now. It's the improviser who maybe can keep going through the... I don't quite know what comes next. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And one of the things that I remember learning before I traveled abroad was one must really strengthen their ability to tolerate ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And you and I both traveled a lot overseas, including Japan, both of us, where mm -hmm. ambiguity is omnipresent and where you and I needed to say, I'm sorry, many, many, many times. <laughs> and improvisational skills come in handy if you're a traveler and vice versa. When you're a traveler, it can really help you boost your improvisational skills, kind of like that Thich Nhat Hanh quote that you have about mm -hmm. the smile toward the back of your book, which I took great interest in. And by the way, listeners, definitely read this book. It's short. It's packed. It's delightful. It's probably my favorite book. And now I'm going to say it. It is my favorite book on improv. Oh so my gosh. There we Thank go. You. Very much in line with what you've been saying. I remember my buddy Paul told me, dude, you got to try improv. Now, this is a guy with a PhD in physics from Stanford, a very heady individual who is also one of the most lighthearted and delightful people, a great husband, a great father. And I was terrified, just like you said. There was no way in hell. It probably took him five or six sales pitches of Sam I aming the green eggs and ham on me before I finally said, I'll give it a shot. And as soon as I got into the water, I did not want out. I ended up doing it for two years. To quote my teacher, it was the most fun a person could have with her clothes on and wasn't about being funny. You know, sometimes funny would happen and it was great, but it was the byproduct of honesty, authenticity. Mm -hmm. And I loved it when you were talking about sometimes you'll get suggestions from the audience that are kind of a joke unto themselves. Like right. I think you talk about a baked mermaid or mm -hmm. a chicken on a bowling ball. Like These are not really good cues for great improv. Actually, you say thinking inside the box can help make better improv. And I was wondering if you could talk about some of the cues and maybe since my hopes from this podcast is for people to have more authentic connections, that we might be able to drag up really cool activities for families, couples, and friends to play. So what might be a good cue? And can you give an example of what might happen by thinking, so to speak, inside the box, and lo and behold, something great happens? I love this because one of the maxims is 
to be average or be obvious, which seems like a really kind of terrible advice, <laughs> especially to Stanford students. Be oh my goodness. Really? Oh, come on, Patricia. We're, we're all overachievers. You can't do that. Be average? Be average. Well, I want to tell you, when you take that pressure off yourself to make this just the best interview I've ever done today. When you take that lid off and allow yourself to be yourself and trust that you already have what you need, wonderful things happen because we often prize authenticity. Now, how do you get to be authentic? For heaven's sakes, you stop trying. You stop putting on whatever is the proper act to look really good and gorgeous and whatever. I'm fond of saying that I've got a group of friends here on the coast that till COVID, we met every Friday once a month for bad art night. <laughs> and the idea we brought our projects, our watercolors or our knitting or whatever, and got together. And of course, we could count on the fact that we could all do bad art, right? So it took the pressure off. There's some way in which this thinking inside the box means if we stay right where we are, I mean, today, mindfulness is a big deal. And part of improv is mindfulness, which Definitely. is being completely in the present moment. Right now, I'm trying to answer the last question that you gave me and make sense out of it and make it useful if possible, so that we sabotage ourselves with this perfectionism. So what if our average or our bad art was just fine. I mean, there's studies that show that you're not going to ever make good art if you don't make a lot of bad art or a lot of art, for heaven's sake. Stop judging stuff. Judging is really overrated, don't you think? If we could turn off that switch that is always evaluating our performance or our appearance or whatever we're doing, just give it a rest. <laughs> And so improvisers, I think, are able to do what they do, partly because they're in an environment with a good teacher makes it safe to do whatever you want to do and never going to be wrong. So let's see what turns up and then we can make something of it. I love that idea so much. And I remember when I was choosing my dissertation chair and one of the people the dean suggested was a particular professor with whom he said, I would write an outstanding dissertation. I said, I don't want to write an outstanding dissertation. I want to write a good one that is done. And because I knew that if I wrote an outstanding one, there was a pretty good chance that I would be ABD, all but dissertation. Right. And I believe it was Picasso who once said that art is never done, only abandoned. Mm -hmm. And as I hold my manuscript for my very first book, I am perplexed. I know I need to get rid of it and just trust it and send it off to the editors, but I just keep monkeying with that little bugger. And I'm sure you can relate to it. And last but not least, I remember both of the TEDx talks I gave. My brilliant coach, Bronwyn, Sally, and Benny said, just abandon the script. But I didn't. <laughs> they were good TED talks, but good. they were not nearly, I believe, as good as they could have been if I had just followed her dictate mm -hmm. and just gone with really a more authentic. They were somewhat scripted. They were well-written. I was very attached to the word. Mm -hmm. And if you think of Sir Kenneth Robinson, who I would say gave the best TED talk of all time, I think he had pretty much abandoned his script. Mm -hmm. I wish I had done the same. The maxim that says don't prepare is really a lie because we can't, we really can't not prepare. Minds prepare stuff. If you're going to do a TED talk, you wouldn't dream of just walking in and seeing what was there. <laughs> In fact, kind of the worst experience of my life was preparing for a TED Talk about improv, for heaven's sakes. It's counterintuitive. They just don't work. 
How did you prepare to give a TED Talk on improv? And where did you really stick with preparation? And where did you stick with being in the moment? Well, as it turned out, there was a blessing. The TED Talk was to be in Lower Manhattan at the Tibetan Museum. And Hurricane Katrina came in and wiped out Lower Manhattan. My TED Talk was canceled, so I never got to do it. Oh, my goodness. Learned a lot. Had a coach and everything. The thing that I advise for something like that is prepare like crazy. Mm. Prepare, prepare. Go ahead. Do it 100 times. Have a coach. Memorize a script. And then when you show up, leave your notes behind. Leave the teleprompter behind. Show up and just be there and trust that the salient things you have to say can come through you. It's probably easier described as I am now than doing it. So I don't have a good answer because I never really hit the stage with my script trying to let it go. The advice I give in my book about here's another way to do a speech instead of writing your speech out is ask yourself questions. I remember that part in your book where you're talking about giving a eulogy at your friend, I believe it was Rebecca's funeral. Mm-hmm. And it might have been Rachel. I can't recall the name, but I know it was biblical. Mm-hmm. And uh You asked yourself questions as internal prompts, Mm -hmm. which I think is one of the best ideas I've ever heard. Asking yourself questions and then responding to those questions as if you're being interviewed Mm -hmm. by Terry Gross or by me or by whomever. Right. Yeah. That we can always answer a question. What is it you most loved about Rebecca? Where did you meet? What did you learn from her? A question like, what did you learn from Rebecca, can certainly prompt a wonderful answer and a natural one. There's a different quality to presentation when it's scripted and delivered. We all know the sound of a scripted and delivered speech. And in fact, I would guess 99% of all TED Talks are scripted and delivered. You better believe it. Yeah, some better than others, some better delivered in the same way that there's good acting and kind of not so great acting, but you still deliver the content. Of course, our great hope is that we can be ourselves sharing this information. I thought you did a real good job, by the way. That's so kind of you. And, you know, I love that prompt of what did she teach you? Over my right shoulder is the box that contains the ashes of my cat. And one of the things that I always would ask people when I used to run the pet loss groups at Humane Society, I volunteered there four years. And you never see tears like you do in a group of people who are bereft. And I know you're an animal person. Yeah. The question I would always ask is, what did your pet teach you? No one ever thought about that before, but they always had answers. Yes. Oh, that's a great question. I'll answer that because I have my Lyra. She may jump up. I would hope. (laughs) She teaches us about love. There's some way that silently animals become aware of their masters and you become aware of them. There's sort of a human connection. Yep. We learn a lot about love, I think, and caring. And also they depend on us for food and litter box and all that practical stuff. So let's talk for a second. You very comically said, I don't want my surgeon to rely on improv unless they have to. Right. And then I hope that they will rely on really excellent improv skills. You also kind of mentioned the thing about the fish. I believe it was an old Irish saying that if you just go with the flow, only dead fish. Yes, only dead fish go with the flow. It was written in a Welsh bar across the top of the bar. (laughs) That is so good. In Welsh, no less. Right, in Uh, Welsh. And then translated. That is so good. So there are times to go with the flow and there are times definitely not to go with the flow. There are times to improv and there are times not to improv. Let's just take a moment and talk about 
as you see it, somebody who studied this so extensively and somebody who was actually denied a job because you played it so safe by coloring within the lines, as you say, and not taking chances. And you posited, oh, it's probably why I didn't get the job. And I think you're probably right by playing it, quote, safe. When is it good to just really break the rules and break out and be in the moment? And when's it maybe better to follow certain known pathways? I am not against known pathways. So much of education, for example, is learning different pathways to do this. I think the surgeon studied (laughs) heart surgery and knows the difference between one kind of scalpel and another. A lot of our lives are based on uh, technologies and the use of tools. A good part of education is studying how to use the tools of doing something, science. And I am all for that. Even with something like art, I do little cards that are called etagami. They are a Japanese form that means a picture word. And they're postcards with some small image, a cup or a flower or pussy cat, and then a piece of good advice or a quotation. And there's something wonderful to be said of practice and studying different techniques. And then once you've studied the techniques of doing this and that, good craftspeople, good artists also at the moment of creation, allow inspiration to come through them and try things and do things. So I don't think that we need to make a case so much for what should be scripted. There are obvious things in life that need careful preparation. But I do believe that when you show up to do that thing, you need to be improvising. And by that, I mean you need to be paying really good attention to what's actually going on rather than what you thought would go on or what you feared would go on. Right now, I'm noticing the time we've had together so far. I'm noticing your smiling face and the microphone and trying to be aware of the moment. Let's talk about paying attention, because one of the things that you say is pay attention as if your life depends on it. And that when traveling to meet the wisest person in the world, or maybe it was even God, when asked about, I believe, something akin to the meaning of life, it was pay attention, pay attention and pay attention. And that's not something that we're very good at doing. We're planners. We have these prefrontal cortices. We Mm -hmm. are. We believe ourselves to be planners. And you said, even especially after 9-11, when we become all the more safety conscious, Mm -hmm. we really relied on part of our brain, perhaps way too much. Mm -hmm. Um, I would argue in this day and age where everything can go on social media and there is just so much information circulating about people behaving badly, we may be very, very careful. Yet at the same time, paying attention as if your life depended on it is such a big deal. You give various exercises in the book about how to increase your attention. Let's talk about that for a minute. I know that we all kind of know that paying attention is important, but let's talk about that for a minute. As stupid as that sounds, what's so important about paying attention? We need to pay attention to what we're paying attention to. Somehow attention is sort of a default. And there's some way that I am not usually noticing what I'm noticing. So I'm going through the day and I'm walking through the living room and I notice that there's something that needs to be picked up and moved. I'm moving into the kitchen. But while my body is going into the kitchen to make tea or coffee in the morning, what I'm really thinking about is I'm worrying about this podcast that I'm going to have and whether or not I'll have something interesting to say. And I find myself, <laughs> probably all do, worrying, noticing, thinking about past and future. We're missing the life that we're in. We don't notice what we're noticing. 
just came upon a wonderful book, The Art of Noticing. Rob Walker, I think it is. And he gives 140 exercises. He might be a wonderful guest that allow us to train our attention to put it where we want it to be, to notice what we're noticing. Here's an example. I go on the same sort of uphill walk every day. There's a hill behind my house that the total walk is about a mile, but a lot of it's uphill. And I've been doing it almost every day for three or four years. And I try to give myself a different object of attention. I might notice different color leaves on this trip, or I might notice cracks in the sidewalk, or I might notice how many different cars and trucks are parked along the way. Or I might notice where my feet are placed or notice something about my breathing. So if I give myself an object of attention, I'm still doing the same physical thing. I'm walking up the hill, but the experience of it is very different when I'm coding the different colors of green that are in the leaves. It's a whole different experience than when I'm planning what I'm going to cook tonight while walking up the hill. Maybe it seems really obvious that our attention kind of floats around unless we choose to grab it and focus it somewhere. And we can practice this. We can give ourselves an object of attention on any given time. Right now, I'm distracted because Lyra, my cat, just pulled herself right up next to me and she's pressing against my thigh and wanting me to scratch her ears. <laughs> so I'm doing that while not paying completely good attention to the question that I'm answering. You did a very good job with it. And you're also kind of sticking by something you cite in your book about tea ceremony, and that is only acknowledging things in the room, which I think is a really good practice. Mm -hmm. Only acknowledging things in the room. And it's so paradoxical. I remember when my son's science teacher said that constraints are the birthplace of creativity. And I thought to myself, oh my God, I'd never really thought about that because I always thought that constraints were the source of everything that Pink Floyd sang about when they're saying we don't need no education. Fact is, if I just say write an essay versus write an essay from the perspective of an elephant in your backyard, <laughs> you know, like that would be really cool. And I like your constraints about noticing a particular quality of something that you're seeing on your walk, and it keeps you more present during your walk rather than focusing on what will I make for dinner. Mm -hmm. A prompt I gave at Thanksgiving rather than the usual, so what are you thankful for? I asked, what sense are you grateful for? Which of your senses are you grateful mm -hmm. for at the moment and why? And that really led to a very rich conversation. Wonderful. Let's talk for a moment about prompts and games. This weekend, I have a family get together. Mm -hmm. If you were in the room, and I kind of wish you were, as you definitely bring the party, what would be three activities that you would suggest that we engage in for some type of improv that families could do? Okay, well, you and I'll do one right now. I've got second one in mind, but this is an improv game called Reminisce. <laughs> and the premise is we all know each other. Of course, in families, we do. But we're going to make up a story together, <laughs> sharing sort of a sentence apiece. I'm going to start with, uh, I remember that time that fill in the blank there. And the premise of improv is that you obviously have to agree with everything. You can't say, no, no, it wasn't that way. But you have to accept that and add something to the picture. So we are fabricating a new memory of that time, and we'll see where we go. Want to go with it? Could I be more giddy? <laughs> all right. You have to remember the time. We all went to Mendocino a long weekend, huh? 
It was so incredible. And that outfit that you wore, I couldn't get over it. (laughs) My sister had made that jacket for me, and I loved wearing it. It was a really cold weekend, I think. Uh, It was. And couldn't believe your sister's incredible artistic skill to actually formulate a clown's nose that would go along with the outfit. And I must confess, I felt a little bit envious. I was wearing (laughs) a very boring outfit and I just wanted to be you in that moment. But I'm so glad you were there, really waving your freak flag to its fullest degree. Well, thank you, because in some ways I wore the clown's nose as well to honor my sister and I was afraid (laughs) I'd really look silly. So I'm really glad you liked it. You brought all of the stuff we were going to cook with, I believe. I did. Felt a little bit bad that I had forgotten some of the most important things, but somehow we made it work and it ended up tasting even better. I didn't know that you could make chocolate pudding without chocolate. It turned out amazing. It was just delicious. And we brought it out onto the deck just as the kind of the sun was going down there over that lake. Did you bring the boat out? I did. And I was so glad I did, even though I really don't know how to navigate a boat well. And I was terrified. I just had trust that the group would be able to figure it out together. There was a little bit of wet clothing in the process, but it was totally worth it. And it just kind of added to the entire story and made the fire that we had outside that evening just all the sweeter because we just kind of all got roasty and toasty after getting very wet on that dumb boat that I brought. It was so lovely sitting around that fire. And then we all started kind of singing together, I remember. It was great. And in various languages and from various stages in our life. And I had totally forgotten Bill Grogan's Goat until you started singing it. And I remember that we sang it back in high school. And it was hilarious. I loved it. That was such a great weekend. And scene. Okay. All right. Isn't that fun? So you can make up memory together. And another great family improv game, we called it Port Key, where we throw a word at someone and they have to tell some story that that word makes them think about. So if I look across the table at my brother-in-law and I throw him a dance and he says, dance, okay, now dance reminds me of, and then tell some story Generally, you can make it up, but we're trying to actually trigger stories from our life. And then you'd tell your dance story and then you'd send a word to someone else. And we're going for actual memories of some sort. It's called Portkey because in the Harry Potter things, a Portkey takes you to a memory or a place. And so I definitely went there with dance. I remembered the dance portion of the tryouts for Bye Bye Birdie, which I tried out for, was the part that I thought was going to keep me from getting the part that I ultimately got, which was Conrad. But doing a dance routine, for whatever reason, my body cannot translate a person's <laughs> words and telling me what to do and how my body ends up moving. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't even do the opposite. It just doesn't even understand. And I was so great. I decided just to improv the dance thing and make it funny. And somehow I passed. So I was able to do the acting and the voice. I knew that. But the dancing part, I was pretty sure was going to be what killed me and think it was actually improv. Unbeknownst to me, gosh, talk about meta here. That saved yeah. my life. So that even that prompt of the word dance caused me to remember that moment in my junior year in high school. So Super. it sounds like one of this game is 
we're basically playing hot potato with words and seeing what memories they trigger in this. Right. You call it a portal key. And it's marvelous because we find out that when we start playing the game and we're sitting around the dinner table, some other people want to tell <laughs> a dance story for them or travel or porch or grandmother or trees or sleeping outdoors or something. I don't know if you've told that story about your audition, maybe probably nobody in the room had heard it. My sister knows about it because she was the one who was trying to tutor me on dancing. She was two years my junior. She actually remains two years my junior after all these years. That has not changed. (laughs) But she can dance till the cows come home. Mm -hmm. I am the opposite. I cannot dance (laughs) for whatever reason. I could probably, if somebody spent an incredibly long time with me, I could probably eventually get something. Mm -hmm. But boy, it's really hard. There was a game that you talked about in the book that might also be tantamount to the third game where we take various items and come up with uses and pass it around. Yes. I mean, you do that with a physical thing. You could pick up a plate or a fork and uh, go around the table and each person gives some kind of creative use for that or funny whatever. Yeah. It's really nice without even talking about it being improv games. You can trick them into doing something together like that. That ends up being a lot of fun rather than talking about COVID or politics or (laughs) whatever. Oh my God, for sure. It's not like we're going to affect change by talking about politics unless we actually do something. Generally, it it ends between those four of the walls and usually it just brings down the mood, if nothing else. You could also do the gift exercise where you tell everybody at the dinner table, right in front of you is an imaginary gift that's wrapped up and we can go around and open them and see what you get. Tell us what you find. Everyone can always find something in the box. I would actually probably want to give this prompt as well and say, this is not whose line is it anyway. We do not have to be Wayne Brady or Drew Carey. We're here just to keep it going. Yeah. So sometimes average is okay and not only okay, but necessary. Just keep it going. So I love that idea. One of the things you actually talked about, I'm just going to cite this. You said, fear is not the problem, but allowing your attention to be consumed by it is. Mm. Wow. Mic drop. That is one of the gems. The book is just rife with gems like that. Just cannot say enough good things about that. Let's talk for a moment about your grandma who may have been Yogi Berra's (laughs) sister or something. I mean, some of the things that she said were so delightful. What were some of your favorite grandma-isms. Well, my favorite is, and I can still hear her tone of voice. I remember her sitting, we were finishing dessert at a family meal, and she says, oh, the Quakers, oh, the Quakers. I just love those folks, the Quakers. Why don't they preach what they practice? (laughs) I love that. She said something about, I think she was reading the obits and was talking about. Oh, oh, yes. She said, "Oh, oh, People are dying today that have never died before. (laughs) I don't know if you're familiar with Yogi Berra and some of his isms. Yeah, like nobody goes there anymore. It's way too popular. (laughs) I like I love those things. You see a fork in the road, take it. He said the most brilliant things I've ever seen. Let's talk about scorpions and wasted energy and purpose. Let's one of the things that you talk about in this book and listener, this all makes sense in a moment, but we rely too much in some ways on our feelings and not enough on our sense of purpose. And you talk a bit about something that was a previous episode. I actually got into Japanese psychology and Morita therapy as well as Nikon therapy. And one of the things you really talk about is 
being purpose driven rather than feeling driven. Like, right. what is my purpose? And I remember I was 23 years old. I had worked in my Japanese company for a year. I had no business asking for a raise. And I remember Mr. Ando looking at me saying, Adam son, what is your purpose? And I was just like, oh God, I don't know. And the bottom line was I did not get a raise. That was for <laughs> sure. I was lucky to be paid what I was being paid at the time, given my skills and my experience. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about purpose, wasted energy, and the scorpion. Purpose over feeling, just using that as really more of the compass. It's simple to explain this. It's not always easy to live it because mm. I think many of us are feeling driven. That is that we decide what to do based on how we feel. I really don't feel like running I was tired. I didn't get that much sleep last night, so I don't feel like running. <sighs> Look, I'm 81 years old. If I don't start moving my body, I'm not going to have it. So I do have a purpose to stay as healthy as humanly possible, <laughs> given my age and that. And this really comes from Morita Psychotherapy that I learned it through David Reynolds, that if we ask the question, what's our purpose? and find the answer rather than what do you want to do? What do you feel like doing? It's a much more stable way to live. Pop psychology is often fond of trying to work on getting motivated for this and that. We don't need to be motivated. We do need to get up and do whatever it is. Marita really is a body-based, action-based way of living. And it's helpful, especially when we're really not so sure about what to do. The question of what needs to be done is a valuable one. So when we finish what needs to be done is I was in the middle of answering some emails and doing some work. We've got our Christmas tree up and what needs to be done is help put the lights on that, et cetera. Usually the answer to that, what needs to be done is really quite simple and obvious and practical. So rather than working on how to make myself less depressed or shifting some kind of feeling state, what can I do right now that is in some way part of my purpose? In fact, purpose can trip you up because it sounds like the boss says, what is your purpose there? And we all have small purposes. I want to be useful. I want to not hurt anybody's feelings. I want to take care of the jobs that have been given to me. Not necessarily a great grand purpose like saving the world or the environment. But right now, and what's coming next, I think coming next for you is you have a personal private client that you're going to be talking to, and your purpose will be to help him and be useful in that setting. Pay attention to him like my life depended on it. Our life does depend on our attention, because where our attention lives becomes our experience. We are what we're attending to, simple enough. So if you're not where you want to be, shift your attention onto what you can do. We can always do something. I was delighted to hear you talk to someone about Marita and Nikon, and I do hope we have a chance to talk about Nikon because that's one of my favorite subjects of all time. Mm. The chapter in the book titled Wake Up to the Gifts is really about my learning, my awareness of how each of us, starting with myself, is being supported practically, realistically, and all the time by the work and efforts of other people. It's fashionable nowadays, I think, to do gratitude practices. And gratitude is often based on what I like and what I feel good about. So uh, if I wake up in the morning and say three things I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for a warm bed and I'm grateful for a house to live in and I'm grateful that 
I have things to cook for breakfast. And those pop up because they're in my sort of plus side. I wonder if I'm grateful for the worker who got up at four in the morning and drove across Highway 92 to go to the water department to make sure that the water system that comes to my house is flowing. His work, somebody I don't know the name of and the face of, is making it possible for me to turn the tap on. There's a Japanese practice called Nikon, which literally means looking inside, that's about asking three interesting questions. What have I received from others? What have I given back to them or others? And what trouble and bother have I caused them? Causing trouble and bother by overusing water or not paying attention to letting the tap drip when I'm brushing my teeth. This set of questions invites us to become really aware of the details of how all of our lives are supported by the gifts and the work of others. So a great exercise would be not just what am I grateful for, because that brings up a feeling state. That's fine, too. But I'm interested in naming or identifying two or three people that you don't know personally whose work made your life better right now. I don't know who is keeping this internet Wi-Fi working, but I am totally in that person's debt right now. But there is definitely someone involved in the flow of electricity that is making our communication possible. I think it's brilliant. And the best friend of this podcast and a very good friend of mine now is author AJ Jacobs, who wrote a book called Thanks a Thousand, in which he thanks a thousand people who were responsible for his morning cup of coffee, the unseen heroes who farmed the coffee, who transported the coffee, who created the cup, who created the machinery. He literally traced over a thousand people down, thanks him personally. And I know that you are a kindred spirit because you thanked Larry and Sergey personally for creating Google because it's given you so much utility. And you really espouse the idea of being very specific when you write something, not just don't say thanks for everything. Be specific about what you're thanking these people for. It's a very different felt experience. But Mm -hmm. one of my favorite axioms of all time is the quality of our questions determines the quality of our life. These three questions What have I received? What have I given? What trouble have I caused? These are three very good questions. And I guess last but not least, I want to go back to the scorpion because you passed a scorpion in Golden Gate Park and it caused you a moment of pause (laughs) because you saw this scorpion go into a defensive posture and remain in that defensive posture long after the defensive (laughs) posture was warranted. And from that It sounds like you deduced, wow, that's kind of what humans do as well, expend tons of energy, kind of like that old Zen story of the two priests walking. One of them picks up a woman and helps her cross a river, and the other is still bad tripping over it and reports it, says, we vowed not to touch a woman. And he says, wow, you're still carrying her, Um, (laughs) even though I dropped her off a while ago. That scorpion was still carrying the bad energy, and I know we all do this. Yes. And so much of life is squandered by that mechanism. And I know I'm, wow, I have many, many moving violations that I'm still paying for in the form of fines in terms of life squandered. Well, it goes back to attention. What is it my little brain is doing right now? What is it obsessing over? And wait a second, let's, can we possibly take a step back? And maybe there's nothing wrong 
one of my favorite cards to make is what if there's nothing wrong? (laughs) Really, what if there's nothing wrong? Everything is as it is. Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I don't. But there's nothing wrong. (laughs) That is really good. Well, you know, I could go on all day with you and you are definitely kindred spirit, my friend. Is there anything Um, I should have asked but haven't yet asked? I don't think so. You've done so much great homework. I can't believe that you're quoting the book and quoting me all over the place. It really makes me as guest feel honored and cared for in a wonderful way. So I want to... Anybody who's listening to this podcast, tell all your friends, but Oh, thank you. Adam Dorsey is a super host. Oh, that means the world to me. And I believe truly, Patricia, that if you're going to bless me with your time, the least I can do is know your work intimately, which leads me to my very last question. And I ask this of all of my guests. It's a magical question. But since you cited Harry Potter, if you could confer upon all humanity one skill or insight that would dramatically improve the lives of individuals and maybe even the lives of people around them, what would that skill or insight be? And how do you imagine it would impact the individual as well as perhaps society at large? Mm, Great question. I think it has to do with the subject we've just been talking about, awareness of others and awareness of them as people, not just as functionaries. So when you go into the grocery store and you're checking out, I suggest that you look at the name tag if they have one and using their name, engage with that person who is right in that moment serving you and have a little conversation that shows your interest. It might be, wow, I'm really amazed that you all can stand up all day for a six-hour shift to do my groceries. Or, uh, wow, looks like you just got a new haircut. In some way, be more interested in the other people in your life. I heard a talk by Paul Tournier almost 60 years ago on the meaning of persons. And he said, if you can take your relationships with everyone in your life and take them one step deeper at every level. So the people that you're close to, if you find a way to be more interested in them and their projects and what they need and truly interested in developing that relationship a little bit deeper, and then the people that you just have a surface relationship, go that one step deeper. Person who's delivering your mail or in the post office to tell them that they're doing a good job. We're all here in the grace of each other. And I'm going to run out and get that book about the thousand things that my coffee, because I'm I'm a believer. (laughs) You're going to love Thanks a Thousand. I actually just reread it. I tend to do that with books I love. And it seems as though you're putting, just to put a cap on our interview and what you're saying, you're putting Martin Buber's idea of I and thou into practice. And with my sons as my witness and my wife as my witness, I do that as well. And I was so glad to hear, you know, I was talking about our letter carrier. His name is Mr. Kim. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about Mr. Kim with my son because I really appreciate Mr. Kim very much. He said, oh, I love that guy. So (laughs) Here's my 14-year-old saying, I love that guy. So it's not just a transactional thing. There's a recognition that there is a beautiful human who is carrying things out to make our lives better. My gosh, Patricia, this has been a blast. I knew it would be. I listened to your book twice, just in the last week alone. I can't wait for my listeners to hear what you have to say. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your improv wisdom, and your wisdom with my listeners. 
And thank you. What a day. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.